Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dave Foley. Oh, yes, well, yes, Dave, well, fucking welcome. welcome, welcome to Really with with Tom flesh. and Dave. How are you doing, Tom? I uh, I'm good. I'm good. Oh. We're uh, recording on a Friday, I think, and it's uh, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's you know beautiful sunny day. My uh, yeah, well, it's an evening. It's evening here. It's nighttime. It's oh, that's dark. right. When are you going to yeah. come back to us, Dave? I'm still vibing. We had this crazy. We had this crazy trip upcoming. We'll uh, we'll we will uh, soon to be all revealed. But we had a really we had a wild yeah. Vegas trip, but not the not the usual kind of wild Vegas trip. But um, no, yeah, uh, yeah. I think we can say yeah. We went to, we went to Las Vegas to spend some time with our uh, our uh, friend uh, George Knapp, mm-hmm. the legendary George Knapp, and uh, did a little uh, wandering around while we were there. Yes, and, we did. Uh, and they'll be and you'll 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 get to hear all of the various things that George said to to uh, to stun us. Yes, 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 indeed. Um, speaking of of stunning. This uh, my mind is also blown by this uh, our the book of our next guest and the theory of our next guest to sort of jump into mm-hmm. it because there's lots to kind of sift through here and discuss and debate because um, it's fascinating stuff. I uh, let me just give you an idea of our guest here. Dr. Michael P. Masters is a professor of biological anthropology. At Montana Technological University in Butte, Montana, he received a PhD in anthropology from the the Ohio State University in 2009, where he specialized in hominin evolutionary anatomy, archaeology, and biomedicine. Recent research examines the premise that UFOs and aliens could be our future human descendants returning to visit and study their own evolutionary past. In 2019, he published Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary scientific approach to the UFO phenomenon which is a broad-based scientific examination of this idea. That is really an interesting read. Um, his second book, The Extra Tempestrial Model, published June 1st, 2022, further scrutinizes this time travel theory with a focus on abductee and contactee accounts in the context of this and other theories put forth to explain this 
complex and mysterious phenomenon. And his most recent book, Revelation, The Future Human Past, published June 1st, 2023, digs deeper into this intertemporal hominin descendants question, but in the context of a satirical time travel science fiction novel. And we're very thrilled to have Dr. Masters with us from beautiful Butte, Montana. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. I'm doing great. How are you two fellas doing this fine evening? We're we're good. We're doing good. Very good. Yeah. I. I. Uh, yeah. I think. Uh, I. I are. I, from. I. I think we. We sort of divvied up some of your work. We did yeah. unintentionally. Uh, Tom. Tom has been reading. Uh. Uh. Identified. Uh, what is it? Identified. Identified objects? flying objects. Yeah. Objects. And I've been reading oh. tempest. Uh, the uh, extratempestrial. Uh. Model. All right. And so we're Such both. Cool stuff. We're both yeah. partially informed. But so, I think uh, always I think the case. Always the case. But I think we're both feeling uh, okay. We're we're probably not up to this task of of the, well, the technical side of this. So you're gonna you're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to baby walk us through it. I can absolutely do that. I will hold hands. We can walk slowly on the beach as we speak. Excellent. Uh, yeah. No, it's it's something I'm used to doing. Uh, it's kind of my job, to be honest, to uh, break things down and explain them in ways people can understand. I teach 500 level classes, 100 level classes. Yeah. So yeah. It's kind of uh, the disadvantage of being educated is that everyone else seems dumb. <laughs> I don't know about that. That's, At that's, times, I, maybe, with certain I'm a, things. I'm a high school dropout, so I'm impressed by everybody. Uh, well, that's my advice. I mean, to, that's some my of, advice some to of the, the most important contributions to society came from high school dropouts. So it's it yeah. really just, I mean, if, a lot of people are tapped into the, the, the space. You know, a lot of musicians, artists, any sort of creative pursuit comes from this seemingly higher place of consciousness and it doesn't take mm -hmm. an education to be tapped into that no, well let's hope well, let's hope not there's hope for uh, you dave is what oh, i good. think we're, we're getting yeah. to there's yeah, there's there's, a, you, there's going to yeah. be i i i'm curious about i'll be full you know full disclosure i am sort of new to the entire phenomenon i've always been sort of curious about it mm -hmm. um and in the kind of list of sort of ideas that were kind of out there, I'll be honest that when I would hear, you know, it's extra dimensional, it's extraterrestrial, they sort of been here a long time, they're this, yeah. the time traveler thing, I was always kind of like, uh, like, okay, my brain can handle so much. I can deal, I can deal with aliens. I can deal, I'm not sure I can handle time traveling aliens. Sure. And that's not the theory here. And having said that, going through, um, identified flying objects is a it is a you you make a a damn interesting case here that certainly um has has risen this up the rankings um not uh not least of which because you like very well smashed the whole idea of et landing on our lawn like i i was like okay that's that's just definitely not happening but um give me a, just an idea of your inspiration for this entire pursuit which is done with great science but accessible science it's it's not so dense as you can't like get through it but it's really super well reasoned so what what brought you to just jumping into this yeah and also yeah what uh, did you have any reservations as an academic on taking on this subject because it's not oh, it yeah. can be i mean a lot of <clears throat> academics have been uh pilloried for even thinking about this subject Absolutely. Yeah. And honestly, you know, it can answer both of those questions with the same answer, to be honest, because a big part of what I wanted to do with the first book, and it, a big reason why it took seven years to write, I started writing this in 2012, is because I, I wanted it to be 
something that was understandable to everyone, but also because of that known stigma that existed even more at that time. Fortunately, it's waned a little bit coming into the present for a lot of reasons that we're, we're aware of. Um, I also wanted it to be something that was scientifically fastidious and, and really presented things in a way that my colleagues could also read it and say, well, okay, that makes sense. He right. did his homework and there's a lot of references here and these are academic papers that he's citing. It's not just various websites and whatnot. So yeah, I really did try to take an approach that was grounded in science, the principle of parsimony, kind of Occam's razor, uh, and also what we can know, what we can't know. But I also don't just necessarily poo-poo all over the extraterrestrial model. Uh, we, you know, it's possible that that's a part of this too. Like, yes, I try to make the case that there's a lot of reasons why we should consider other models as well, and especially this time travel model. But I don't necessarily think that we should just throw everything out the window and say it's time. Everything's time travel. I think that would oversimplify things. So my personal journey started when I was eight years old. I heard about my father having a UFO encounter. And... Um, not long after, I looked up on the living room shelf, and for some reason, Whitley Strieber, Whitley Strieber's classic book, Communion, was facing out. And I saw that cover and had sort of this mental image pop in my head of a, an early hominin. This, this, haunting, this haunting image, yeah. That's, that's the, the one. I got, I've got the keeper. same cover from that book framed sitting <laughs> on my shelf facing out the same way that one was that inspired me so long ago. Yeah. Um, but it sort of visualized together this early hominin or chimpanzee-like form, a modern human form, then that archetypal gray alien form, and just noticed the similarities, wondered if we could be one and the same. Um, and from that point on, I, that, that question just lingered, and I wanted to know more about it and started out in physics and astronomy at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, and then switched to biological anthropology in order to pursue those beans themselves. And um, yeah, just tr try to figure out if they could be us, we could be them, and they're just an aspect of our own evolution. Now, can I ask you, what can you, would you mind telling us about your, your father's experience? Yeah, I was going to ask you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, he didn't talk about it much. He was very religious and saw it as the devil's work and trying to lead us away from God and all this stuff. But wow. I did go back and interview him in college because, again, this has always been an interest of mine. And I actually now understand it as my first instance of conscious precognition. I've had dream precognition my entire life, but this was I've had f about five of these since then where I, I somehow communicate with my future self or past self uh, in, in seemingly odd ways, always through dreams. But this was one of those times, and it's happened enough that I can identify it as one of those times where I was awake, fully conscious, aware, and then information seemingly came from now, I guess, or my future self in some way. I know that sounds crazy to say, but uh, it's a very not, real not experience. Anymore. Well, your chapter on block Nothing time. Nothing sounds crazy anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to say, <laughs> you've ha you have that block time chapter was kind of blowing my mind. So I was like, okay. I was like, that's probably yeah, what's happening. Yeah, and if everything's like, if those moments are already there, you know, like I knew my children before they were born. I knew my wife before I met her. Like all those moments were there and I saw them usually through dreams. But to get back to your question, uh, what my father saw, he was a veterinarian in Amish country in Northeast Ohio. And he was out with uh, one of his colleagues late at night, it was about two or three in the morning, crested a hill, saw a very bright light uh, off in the horizon. And it was just sitting there. There's not many lights in Amish country at all. 
And all of a sudden it shot toward their truck, hovered about maybe a hundred yards away in front of them, shot back to where it was, hovered for a little while longer, and then straight up into the sky and disappeared. And there's not a lot of prosaic explanations for something like that. So naturally it, it piqued his curiosity. And um, I think that's what led him to get Whitley's book. And he got Whitley's book and his conclusion was one of really kind of just keep that, keep that away. This is Yeah. And when I, when I interviewed him about it in college, just to make sure I fully understood, because I was, you know, eight years old when I overheard this and he was talking to friends, I was supposed to be in bed. And uh, I just wanted to make sure I had the course of events, right? That this was a real thing. This did happen. And and so I asked him about it and that's when he kind of went down the, um, yeah, don't, don't follow this path. Satan will stick pitchforks up your ass or whatever they do. I don't know. So yeah, I, I, I did anyway, pitchforks, uh, be damned. I guess. As kids yeah. will do, you know? Yeah. 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 Go figure. Well, it's, well, it's interesting because you say, even though you've, you've presented such a strong argument in, in both of, of your, of your two books, um, that you're not, you're not putting it forward as the only answer and that we should no. answer other, uh, versions, which, which reminded me that I don't, it was a, a while back. Hal Putoff put out like an yeah. essay where he where he did say we should we should even consider we shouldn't dismiss the demonic as a possible explanation. True. Yeah, uh, the ultra terrestrial model, I think, is what he called it. Yeah, yeah, it was good. He said the same thing. Let's start with everything. All of these models. I, I did a whole talk about this in Phoenix in May, yeah. and then let's whittle away the ones that yeah. don't fit the data. And I think that's a great approach for yeah. all of us. Yeah, try to find try to find evidence to dismiss an idea as opposed to just dismissing it yeah. out of hand. Exactly. Exactly. Um, which I think, yeah, which is I think is a great way to approach it. And and so yeah, so I guess that's such, so your interest in this is from childhood, and you say you have precognition experiences. Um, yeah, a lot. And that's ongoing and. Those also go back to childhood or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, ever, as long as I can remember, I would dream things and then they would come true. And sometimes it'll be a few days, sometimes weeks, sometimes decades. But I'll mm. still remember that dream. And it's not just what I see. It's it's all of my anxieties. It's the smells. It's situations. It's what's going on in my life at that time. All of that information somehow transcends time in this sort of ethereal consciousness that happens in a dream state. Mm. Do you think um, that was uh, so? I, I, you know, I'm I'm kind of still reeling from some of the the sort of time travel chapters and thinking about nonlinear time and thinking about time as kind of a biological, you know, construction versus being an actual That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, reality. Um, right. Do you so? Do you think this was um, meant to be that you were writing this? I mean, do you believe that you were? Um, destined to write this book do you think there was another another path you might have taken it sounds like uh through through the book identified so you call by the way you call these things ifos identified flying objects well just just in that book yeah Yeah, suggested there it was a cheeky little thing like let's get away from the stigma of ufos which now we can talk about as ufos again because they're real yeah go figure Mm -hmm. who knew Uh, that we'd be able to say that I think we're definitely dealing with a phenomenon in the skies and in people's lives and through dreams yeah. and abduction experiences. Um, so I guess what my, one of my questions is, do you feel like that was you telling you to write this book? I mean, do you feel like this was, you know, destined to be? Well, I, I think a lot of people have this experience. Um, I was on a panel at the opening the archives conference at Rice University last March with Eric Wargo, who literally 
wrote the book on this, a book called Time Loops, where he lays out what precognition is, how it might work in the context of the block universe, quantum mechanics, all of these very scientific pursuits that might help explain it. But in the block universe, yeah, those moments are there. You know, it's easy for us consciously to remember our past moments, but future moments, if we're in a dream state or near-death experiences or DMT trips or, you know, possibly even acid, uh, uh, other psychedelics, you sort of disassociate from this fleshy meat bag brain body thing that holds our consciousness in. And once it's released from that, time disappears. People talk about being able to see in all directions at the same time, but not feeling time, not sensing it in the way that we do in these bodies. And as you pointed out, a lot of it's because we had to evolve to recognize how fast a tiger's coming at us and how fast we have to get into a tree. It's a biological requisite of living in these environments and we evolved to that. But outside of our perception of time, it doesn't exist in the way that we perceive it. There isn't linear time in that way. So it's not crazy to say that if those moments are there and you have access to those moments in a dream state or an altered state of consciousness, then yeah, you could absolutely get glimpses of them. I don't think it was some sort of predestination type thing. I think I was just more aware of what, what I'm doing now, I guess, essentially. And, right. and it's almost cheating in a way, like you're kind of getting a sneak peek into what's going on later, um, like cheating on the test kind of a little bit, I guess. Now, I, now the block, you know, the block time or block block universe, is that your, is that, yeah. is that, is that the Einsteinian like view of the universe and how time, you know, past, present, future, all coexisting and, and that you, you can sort of intersect different points in time, if, depending on what, how you're traveling, like, like how you're traveling sort of, you know, I guess, uh, perpendicular to the, I guess, to, to the space time. Sort of. Yeah. It's also sometimes called landscape time. And if you picture, um, all of these various moments that have happened spread out across a landscape, you can jump across them and end up in places that already exist in physical reality, whether it be a part of your past or a part of your future, and you're not disrupting anything. That's the important part. And, and Tom, when you were talking earlier about how you sort of struggled with the concept, a lot of people get hung up on this. And I, I think much of it is owed to the, the, the crap storylines that were put out through the 80s and 90s with regard to how time travel might work, because it, it doesn't work the way Back to the Future describes it. If you go into the past, it's non-disruptive. You're not changing anything. You're just going into the past and doing the same things you had always done in those moments. If you, if you interact with your future self, you can be damn sure that by the time you get to be that age, you will be going back and interacting with your past. Right. Self. We're not, there are no billions of probabilities we're on. There is a, there is a sort of fixed yeah. future and past in a weird, despite the landscape, despite block time or existing all at one time, yeah. it is the same time for Yeah, you're not, you're it. not obliterating your future by altering your past. By killing grandpa. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and those paradoxes disappear in the block universe model because all the time is already structured. If you didn't kill your grandfather, there's no way to do that because mm -hmm. you exist and he exists. And that's just yeah. the way those moments are structured and always have been and always will be. There are other theories um, in the, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, multiple timelines, multiple universes. In those scenarios, you can have branching timelines and you can have change, which does interject those paradoxes. But in the block universe model, which is the most mm -hmm. conventionally held model in physics, I didn't just pull this out of my ass. You know, right. This is what yeah. physicists think is the case. And because of that, I can only start from this point in time with what we know now. And that's what I did with this book. I try to be very conservative in my approach, uh, acknowledge when something was speculative, acknowledge when something 
you know, can't necessarily be backed up by evidence, but, but the block universe model does seem to make sense, not just in reality, but also with regard to this phenomenon. I have to, and, and let's take this chronologically back if, if you can, because you are a biological anthropologist. Um, and one of the things I found most compelling really, and hadn't fully taken it in was the, was how unique our structure, our biological structure is in the, not just, not just on our planet, but, but in the galaxy. I guess my question to you is, in your opinion, what are the odds that another bipedal, uh, highly intelligent, fleshy, uh, being will evolve in our, or has evolved in our galaxy? Um, what would you say the odds of that are? Well, in our galaxy, possibly. Um, in our universe, more likely, but close enough that they would find us, that they could travel here, and that they would be just slightly more advanced than we are at this current time, I would say is next to zero. And there's been so many things that went into our unique evolution on this planet. And the dinosaurs had to die 65 million years ago for homeothermic ancestors of ours, these tiny little rodent-like mammals to come out. They had to go into the trees where we evolved for about 60 million years. And then six to eight million years ago, we came down from the trees and started walking on two legs and adapted to that. All of, And that's just a, a microcosm of all of the other things that would have to exist on this hypothetical other planet. And as I point out in a number of lectures I've given, we have a very small planet and bipedalism is almost non-existent here. We're the only upright walking mammal on this whole damn planet. And what, from a study I did in 2016, and then again, I repeated it last year, what I found is between two and 4% of all of the exoplanets that have been discovered, and we're talking thousands now, only two to 4% are the same size or smaller than our earth. So with only 9.8 meters per second squared of gravity, and it's so difficult here and we're the only ones doing it. And we suffer all kinds of problems from being bipedal. Right. I mean, the older I get, I start to feel these day in and day out anymore. But if it's so rare here, it's likely to be even more rare on these other planets simply because there's more gravity. The, and the many context, of them are massive super earths. And the context of this question that that I should have pointed out was that you're, you are saying that because of that communion image of that, that alien gray, the sort of classical alien that is bipedal, has the big head, the big eyes, the small mouth, uh, um, communicates with us in a way that we can understand many yeah, times with important. abduction can, phenomena. Can breathe our air too. Breathe, breathe our, our air. air. And you were making the kind of putting that in context of like how likely is an alien uh, to, to have those same physical attributes. Right. Yeah. And not only would we not expect them to have the same ones, but to have the ones we would expect to see in our evolutionary future specifically. Like we expect mm. bigger, broader heads, bigger eyes, because the eye grows out of the brain and they're thought to be controlled by the same gene mechanisms, what's called pleiotropy. We would expect to have more slender bodies, less pigmentation, more craniofacial feminization, more neoteny and pedomorphosis, which is the retention of juvenile traits into adulthood. And so many of these abductees and contactees like Terry Lovelace and um, Travis Walton described these as children, childlike, infantile. And that's a trait we would expect because that characteristic of human evolution is extremely dominant all throughout. So we'd expect that our descendants would look more like our current children. And that's exactly what we see. Yeah. So not just that we look the same or act the same or can breathe the same air, can communicate, 
but they look exactly like we'd expect them to if we continue to evolve. We should maybe point out to people who, who haven't read your books or, or your bio that uh, that you, this was your field of study before you started writing books about UFOs, was you were studying the evolution, the cranial evolution of, of, of yeah. hominids. Yes, and so this, this came out of your, your academic work. Yes, and but you know, again, full circle. Uh, did I went into this field because of this question too? Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's cool. So, so it was about you know it. You're all about, about time loops. Everything's a loop with you. <laughs> well, you see them enough, and you start to say, "What the fuck is going on here?" You know, and that happened to me very early in my life. I was like, "What? How did I dream this before it happened?" And I was forced to think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and then as I got the ability to, I was. You know, consuming every time travel book I could in high school and college just to try to figure out what that was. Mm. But in the back of my mind was always that lingering question, could they be us? And obviously, I have to point out, there could be selection bias, you know, in doing that. There can be all kinds of biases. Like, am I just looking for that? And I, but I, as a scientist, we're forced to check that, all of our biases. But I also, what was interesting is the more I went down this rabbit hole in undergraduate, graduate school, even in my research, my postgraduate research and, and my career, everything just seems to still fit this idea. It just it makes sense, you know, not just in our physical evolution, but the technology, the the form follows function aspect of these craft, the demonstrated ability for them to manipulate time, manipulate the space-time metric, as Hal Podoff says. Just all of these things seem to fit together. And again, that doesn't mean I discount all of the theories, but I do think this one should be taken seriously. Yeah, it, it, there was so much, like, uh, it, it is, it, you make a convincing case. I, even the idea, I was like, well, you know, it, it's not that even intelligence is inevitable. Um, just in just in terms of sort of put, trying to kind of put aside extraterrestrial for a moment to allow time traveler to become more of a kind of idea, the idea of intelligence is just not inevitable, right? I mean, it's, you know, if so, sharks would be, you know, have IQs of 200, right? They'd be, That's, I mean, this is it's a unique, this is a unique kind of, uh, is our intelligence just a, um, an, an aspect of circumstance? I mean, is it just a sort of circumstantial that our intelligence developed? Well, maybe, but it's there's also again a, a biological explanation. I, I talk about this a good bit in the, um, I think maybe chapter eight in that book you're reading, Tom, where as we stood upright, importantly, our heads had to rotate down so we could see where we were going. So our eyes were aligned with the horizon, and as that happened, it flexed our basal cranium, which opened up more space inside the skull where a bigger brain could go. So in a lot of ways, like there was obviously selective pressure and sexual selection, smartest gets laid and has more babies and all these things. But even beyond that, just the fact that we stood upright, flexed our basal cranium, like if you think we, we often call this the slinky hypothesis. If you imagine two parts of a slinky, either end, you bend them toward each other, which is exactly what happened. The brainstem where it goes in, the frame and magnum came forward and our faces became reduced and retracted. So as you bend the two ends of that slinky down, it bows out on the top. And that's exactly what happened to our skull. So we got this enlarged neurocranium where we could eventually start packing in more and more brain tissue. So yeah, again, it's a unique aspect of our evolution that may have contributed to our high intelligence as well. Yeah, and, and then the evolution can continues theoretically. Yeah. Theoretically. So I'm, I'm trying to, so with this, the becoming an upright species, you're saying enlarge that 
just that that re that reorientation of the body enlarged the cranium is that because i'm not i don't really know what i'm talking about now but there that that period that idea that there was an unexplained acceleration of our mental capacity at a certain point in our evolution that uh yeah that <clears throat> call that's definitely part of it. Yeah. So the flexing of the neurocranium, the vasocranium that allowed the neurocranium to expand, that's sort of an early, well, not early, but it, it's something that didn't necessarily make our brains grow. You're right. There has to be other factors involved. And we call it this uh, brain behavior feedback loop or the runaway brain train. Because you're right, it just started accelerating like crazy. And especially beginning about 800,000 years ago with our Homo heidelbergensis-ish ancestors, and really up into modern times, there's this rapid evolution of, of brain size. And that, that most likely has to do with our culture. Uh, and in anthropology, we can't separate culture and biology. They became one thing with humans. As we invented fire, for instance, and stone tools, we processed our food so that our face could shrink back and get out of the way of that brain. And then all of the things that come with being more intelligent, uh, being able to make better tools, being able to like I said, have more babies because you attract more mates because you're, you're suave or you speak better. You tell stories better. You make cave paintings. and Everybody's like, "Ooh, look at the artist. Let's go have sex with them. You know, so there's a lot of other things involved. But that importance, the importance of just standing up is, is maybe paramount in an early setting the stage capacity. And then you're right, Dave, all of these other things came later. Yeah, because I'd, I'd heard some theories that it was the um, our ability to cook meat. Like we started mm -hmm. eating meat, which which allowed us to to store yeah. more fat. See, what are you talking about? You know all kinds of yeah. shit about this. That's called <laughs> yeah. the expensive tissue hypothesis. And you're right. Yeah, when we started eating meat, it reduced our gut, and it allowed more energy to go up to our brains. And meat is a better source for the the evolving brain. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. And then when we learned to cook it, we could we could actually better process it. Mm -hmm. Yep, um, it's all related. Mm -hmm. Um. You talked about uh, also in this, and then we can kind of, I'm going to, I want to move into like, you know, abduction and how, you know, these creatures talk to us, but it was, um, you, even if intelligence does evolve in our galaxy or in some of these exoplanets, because I think you were getting, you were starting to say, you know, because of the size of these planets, the gravity is going to accommodate a different level of locomotion, right? So even if you're, if there's something intelligence developed, it's probably going to have eight legs or, you know, be kind of close to the ground, right? Or sort of rolling yeah, around. It's yeah. just not, it, the, it's not going to look like us. It seems very unlikely that anything visiting us would look like us, much less yeah. communicate like us. Um, talk a little bit about vibration. I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I think so too. Um, it's, so we, we would expect, and, and you know, it's, it's important to focus on the fact that we are unique. We have a very unique evolutionary history here, but there are certain things that everything would have, uh, most likely a sense of smell um, and vibrational sensitivity, because you need to know if things are around you that can kill you or that you want to mate with or that you can eat if they are also moving. So that's one that's definitely going to happen. I think the part you're talking about in the book is I, I also mentioned that a lot of other animals that still use vibrational communication isn't in the range of our our hearing. So elephants, for instance, are talking to each other all the time, but it's in the, the, the infrasound. It's below our range of hearing. And I think I mentioned the demon African mole rat that just pounds its head on its tunnel. 
it's still communicating through vibrations, but you have to know what those mean and be yeah, in right. the tunnel. And so there's a lot of specifics to all of it too. But yeah, we would expect them in sight. The eye evolved something like 15 times independently because it's so important to perceive movement around you too. So those are certainly there. But again, once you focus on how we look specifically, being upright walking, and, and I oftentimes cite the Dr. Edgar Mitchell free study. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It was published around the same time as my first book. But they surveyed across the world in 17 different languages, over 3,500 people. The most commonly described form was human, just like us. Like not humanoid, humanish, but human. And, and that was a failing going from my first book to my second, as I kind of overlooked that fact. I mostly focused on the grays and long distance human evolution. But in my second book, there's a number of cases where it's normal looking humans like us that come out, don't even speak telepathically yet, but speak in vocalized communicative speech. And um, so, so yeah, that, and then the second most common form is the short grays, then the tall grays, and then the hybrids. And importantly, by definition, all four of those are upright walking hominins. They're in our evolutionary clade. But then that still leaves, you know, uh, from abduction uh, testimony, uh, insectoids like the mantids and the um, moth, and reptilians. Man, dog, man, reptilians. Yeah. 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 No, I don't have an ex I don't have an explanation. Like I said, I, I you know, don't. We, I'm not trying we, to offer. Do we need to keep an eye on our, our praying mantises right now? That's well. Not yet. Yeah. And here's oh, why. Yeah. Or this is gotta, a, that's a fair question. Keep the reptiles under our thumb. <laughs> I'm more worried about the reptiles. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Like if I had a chameleon, I'd be sleeping with one eye open. <laughs> here's the thing about the the mantids, though, that a lot of people overlook is that they have six legs. These mantid beans aren't being described as having six legs. Therefore, they're not a part of the insect kingdom. They're mm. they're uh, tetrapods like us. They have four limbs. And I think what's going on here is that we're talking about a very distant point in the human future. And these these ones with the huge eyes, you know, high level of consciousness, they seem to be the ones in charge. I'm, I'm sure you've come across that from looking at the abduction literature too. Mm -hmm. And we would expect that of the very distant humans with this highly evolved consciousness where they're just sort of, you know, overseeing this whole operation with their, their super brains and, you know, commanding the whole thing. So I think we're confusing very distant future humans for a praying mantis-like creature. I, I don't know what to tell you about the reptilians. There, the, there's a connection between Sasquatch and UFOs. I don't know mm -hmm. what that is either, but it's definitely important to pay attention to those things. Oh, I think um, I would love to sort of talk about motive. You know, one of the things that is constantly kind of coming up in these conversations, like we don't know what they want. You know, it's like their, their movements are so mysterious. They don't seem to, they um, talk to us as a, an anthropologist about what you feel their motives might be, how that, how that loops into this whole theory. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I, I just gave a talk in Cincinnati last month, two months ago. And that was the whole question is friend or foe. What, are, what, are, what is their intent? You know, and obviously we can't know that until they tell us, but we can look at what they're doing and start to tease out um, what the motivations for those activities might be. And one, one pattern that keeps recurring is gamete extraction. For decades, they were capturing us, taking sperm and egg, putting developing fetuses inside females and taking them back out. I, I list one case in my um, 
my second book, The Extra Tempestro Model, where this was happened almost 30 to 40 times to this one poor woman named Jerry, who eventually came to accept it. And she was okay with it because she was part of something bigger. And a lot of contactees describe that. But so I think this focus on gametes is extremely informative. I think it indicates that there's some aspect of our evolutionary future where we start having problems with reproduction. And they're coming back to sample wild type gametes, wild type genes from the only time they can, because we can't just go to another planet and start taking human DNA from animals that evolved. Like we talked about earlier, they'd be so different from us that we wouldn't be compatible, but we can, if we can go into the past, something goes wrong either because of CRISPR or um, fertility issues related to current issues. Even there's been a 60% reduction in sperm counts in males in the Western world in just 40 years. 60% 60% reduction in 40 years, 50% across the entire human population. So if these trends continue, we may have to fix something and it may help explain that. So that that could be an aspect of the intention there. But I think it's also hard because we are likely talking about very different groups, even if they're coming from the same time. I don't think they are. I think they're spread out across eons in the future. But even if they are, you'd expect variation just in the fact that some people now are nice and some people are assholes. You know, so you're going to get different things from different individual personalities, different groups. So I think as far as saying, why are they here? What do they want? We have to define which they are we talking about and from what time and from what region. And, you know, I I think it's impossible to just put one label on it. But there does seem to be these recurring themes and and the gamete extraction, certainly one of those. Sorry, Dave, did you have a... No, no, you go. Yeah, I was going to, I mean... I was going to ask about your 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 father, for example, saw his uh, those lights in Amish country, which is of yeah. course so remote. And we in so many cases we see the you know there, it seems like that in these remote locations, places low you know the population density, you know Arizona lights, notwithstanding you know the Phoenix lights, right. most of the time we're talking about remote areas. I would the thought that might be a motive for not being discovered. And I guess that still applies, even if time is fixed. Is there still this potential sense that not to intrude or not to overly make a spectacle of yourself, you know, if you're showing up as a time right. traveler? Um, I don't know. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Just the, yeah, the it's, elusiveness it's a great of question. Them. Right. And you know, I, I've said for a long time, if they are extraterrestrials, and they come all the way across the galaxy. Why not shake a hand and say, hey, we're your galactic neighbors. We're all in the same galaxy. But that doesn't seem to be the case. There's almost this temporal prime directive where they go out of their way not to interfere. And that is something that we would expect with future humans coming back into the past to a time that predates broad knowledge of who they are when they're coming from, what they're doing. So yeah, in my opinion, I think we would expect exactly what we're seeing. I think that's further evidence for this theory. But I think we can also acknowledge, and we could take a three-person poll on this because I'd like to know your thoughts as well. But I think we can say at this point that we are shifting toward full knowledge of what's going on. It feels that way. And I've studied this my entire life. Uh, actually, this is kind of a, a full circle moment for me because I kind of had a not a great childhood, but I'd be so excited about coming home after school and I'd watch uh, Monty 
pythons, flying circus, kids in the hole, and then whatever UFO show I could find. And it was like the bright aspect of my day. I was like, I can't get wait to get home and just laugh for a while, you know. And it was it's so it's funny talking to you, Dave, right now because it was such a important part of my my youth. But I do I do think that we're. By the way, you guys came out you guys came out blasting with the reboot of that too. Oh, thank you. I've been watching that over the last couple months, and I've been telling all my friends to watch it too. It's absolutely hilarious. It's awesome. In any case, I got off track there. Um, so yeah, I do think we're moving toward knowledge of this. And I think it's going to be that moment where we do get to know, you know, I, I used to say this even in 2019, when I first started talking about this stuff, I was like, well, it's, it'd be so great if we could know in our lifetime. I think it's almost inevitable at this point. I think it's going to be the next five to 10 years that we will have the answers to a lot of these questions that have eluded us for so long. Mm -hmm. I am a privately uh, and now publicly rooting for the time traveler idea, um, just because I think some of the other ideas are beginning to sound a bit more sinister and and maybe, you know, not so great of what is going to be disclosed if it gets disclosed. Yeah, there's some doom and gloom, isn't there? Potentially, yes, yeah. there's some there's some weirdness out there. I mean, my feeling yeah. my feeling about disclosure and well, whether we will know. Well, I think I think we are knowing. I think people people know. There is a there is a, a a group that seems to just know and accept Absolutely. accept that we know. Whereas there's others that are catching up to this idea of like, wait, do we know? <laughs> you know, they're sort of they're not paying as close attention. And I, um, whether or not we're gonna someone's gonna come out and tell us, I my opinion changes every you know afternoon. Like I'm like, ah, oh, fuck it. Like they're they're well, playing the same well, games. Here's the and- thing. Here's the thing. It's not up to them anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't think it has anything to do with them. I think they mm-hmm. are trying to catch up with what is already in the books. It's already happening. And I've I've been saying this for years now. I think the visitors are the ones leading this. Well, like, that's... look at the Schumer Amendment. Look at what, what's happening with Congress and, and the way that they're scrambling to try to get into these meetings to ask informed questions. They're trying to figure out what the hell is going on to try to get on board before everything hits the fan. I, I yeah. don't think they're leading it. I think they're following it. Well, that's what I've said. I think that uh, things like the Schumer... Schumer's uh, proposed legislation, it's all, uh, as I said, it's it's a negative impression of the information they have that we don't have. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, that's um, a great way of putting it. And uh, so, I th- yeah, I do think uh, for someone like Chuck Schumer, who's a pretty mainstream politician, pretty, you know, you know, a, pretty much a centrist liberal, but, uh, and not a guy who takes a lot of huge risks. No. Uh this is way, way, way out of character for him to write this yeah. legislation. Yeah. And look yeah. at the words in it. Look at the language, the lexicon. It's all the words we've been using for decades. 25 yeah, even, usages of non-human intelligence. Like, um, yeah. yeah. No, I'm just that, – that, even if I take that glass half empty view – which sometimes I do, which is just like, okay, well, I, is he somehow responding to po- like popular demand that there's a, a demand among the public to put forward UFO legislation? And I'm like, I don't, like, I can't see. I mean, there's some, there, there's a constituency yeah. in the sense that like, I do think people want to know, and I'm sure some of the phones yeah. are ringing off the hook. And I think, but in terms of motivating the majority leader to put his name on legislation, that right. honors Harry Reid, who clearly <laughs> believed the government yeah. was not sharing yeah. and probably knew, and I think it's fair to say, yeah. knew that they weren't sharing all their information. I do think it's it's really significant. I've been somewhat discouraged by that. It seems like some senators like Warner, people are beginning to veer around and away from it. But in the bigger picture, um, to your point, 
it it does seem like a boulder that's yeah. rolling down the hill and as there, opposed and to there is the, and there is no political upside to it. I mean, yeah, because because I can Schumer, see. this is this is a huge, a hugely significant piece of legislation, and it has had zero coverage. Uh, right. in the media like no one and so only this like maybe one one or two percent of the population that are involved in this issue know yeah, about it almost, or care about it it's almost like there's maybe like a hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss social and political rapture coming and they don't want to be left behind they mm. don't want to be the ones that are like oh no what the hell is going on they want to get out in front of it and like the fact mm. that that grush and uh fravor and uh graves uh hearing that happen like you have people from both sides of the aisle asking extremely informed questions that if you asked me five years ago if they would be asking anything close to that I'd say you were crazy yeah. But they're clearly getting very detailed classified information for a reason on yeah. both sides. What other thing has brought people that are such polar opposites together well, to see, ask such informed questions? Seeing Jamie Raskin and Tim Burchett on a panel uh, is the closest thing I've seen to a miracle in my lifetime. <laughs> Uh, and yeah. and and that they and that they they were all there together, and none of them took the opportunity to snipe at one another. No, not at all. Um, you almost expected Jesus to come down right there. And, it was you know, a, it was it quite astonishing. Forever. And you've got yeah. the Schumer Amendment yeah. on one side, and then you know, kind of Gillibrand. Nancy Mace on the you know in the House. Yeah. It was like the, we were talking. Yeah, we were talking very extreme. Things are happening. I, I'll double down on that. I think we'll know in the next five to ten years. Yeah, well, and I, I think, think I think there's a very good chance that it's going to come out their future humans. I don't know if you've read Joe McMonagle's book, um, The Ultimate Time Machine, about his future. No, I haven't. Although we were just talking to uh, to uh, Chris Ramsey about, and he had just done a lengthy sort of uh, series on uh, Joe McMonagle. Yeah, viewing. And I watched. And I, I watched I, I, Ramsey's his name's so hard name. to say. Yeah, McMonagle. Yeah, well, he says yeah. I, I published my second book uh, last year. And then I was, we went on a trip back to Ohio and I was reading that book while there, literally two weeks after I published it. And on page like 177, he says that he remote viewed the future, pretty proximal parts, and then 3,000 years in the future. And the future sounds delightful, by the way. It's, it's very hopeful if you're That's feeling down, trodden about humanity. I know we all need that, especially right now. Yeah. But he said explicitly by, that by the mid 21st century, so coming up, that there will be broad understanding that UFOs, for lack of a better word, are time machines. And mm -hmm. I was like, God damn it. Why didn't I read that two weeks ago before I published this book? 
arguing yeah. at their time machines. There's, there's remote viewers saying the same thing for completely yeah. different reasons. And I, and I have to disclose, like I, 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 like I don't, I don't have a a, a weighted system for which which uh, model I think is the most likely to be the case, whether it's pan, you know, extra dimensional, extraterrestrial, or extra uh, tempestrial. I think I, they, I think they're all possible. But I gotta say, I've always found the extra tempestrial to be the one, the one that's always a little disappointing to me. Yeah, people say that. I know because it's I, us. Yeah, and I don't want it to be us because I, I, I don't because I want to know that we get off the block that we get, you know. But maybe we do. Maybe yeah. we do. And I, I, honestly, one of my editors pointed this out that we might be extraterrestrials too, mm-hmm. where we go on to occupy all these other planets. Obviously, these craft can travel very fast. They can manipulate space time, so they could probably get to another planet like that. They might not even have to deal with all of the time dilation aspects. And he was like, you know, maybe it's. Maybe like with Betty Hill and all these people say we're from this star system or this planet. Maybe they've just been there so long that they don't think about their earthly origins anymore. Like people, when people ask me where I'm from, I don't say Wales, even though all my ancestors are from Wales. I say them from Montana or Ohio. You know, that's about yeah. as far as I go back. Right. So, you know, maybe some of them are extraterrestrial, but still possibly humans from hmm. a, di- a distant point. In the well, that's sort of the, well, that's sort of the, the foundation uh, as a Gazimov, isn't it? That it's that humans populate the entire galaxy. It's very, it's very possible. Yeah. I would say even probable if we have that technology. We, I don't think we just use it for time travel. I think we definitely do interstellar travel as well. We become our mm-hmm. own, our own aliens. Um, talk about yeah. the, talk about the ships a little bit. Talk about why you feel what we see or what people see uh, is more indicative of of time travel or why it might be might suggest that. Right. So as I briefly mentioned earlier, we have this expression that form follows function. And mostly it refers to biological things like the form of our digits indicate the function of grasping and whatnot. Um, but it applies to everything. And the form of these craft is very consistent with the function of creating closed time-like curves, which would allow you to travel into the past. So to think of um, closed time-like curves, you have to understand what a light cone is. So if you turn on a beam of light, a flashlight, and it beam shot out, it makes a cone where within that is all possibilities in the known universe based on our laws of physics because nothing can go faster than light but in order to travel into the past you have to rotate those light cones over so really since einstein's paper on general relativity in 1915 instantly very soon after there are all these solutions that demonstrated how the rotation of a highly energetic or highly massive ring disc or sphere could create that frame dragging effect, it could create the ability to tip those light cones over. So you and your local frame of reference are still moving forward, but you're going into the global past. You're jumping into the past. It's not that you see everything moving backwards like they do in a lot of time travel movies, right? Um, but you're still moving forward. So uh, there was Lenz and Thuring in 1917, so just two years after. And then you had Godel and Van Stockholm. And then importantly, you had in the 1970s, Frank Tipler show how if you shrink that thing down to the size and shape of a disc and rotate it fast enough, you can create these time light curves, these closed time light curves. And that's a UFO. He's describing a UFO. So I think that's important to keep in mind. I don't think it's that simple. Uh, Since I published that in 2019, that was an interesting correlation that I put in there because I think it's important, especially looking at the history over the last, you know, 110 years since the seminal paper. 
But I do think it's it's more nuanced than that. I don't know how they're doing it. Um, possibly harnessing zero point energy to be able to even accomplish this, but they they clearly are manipulating space time around these craft. And in the book you're reading, Dave, I give all of these examples of people seeing time move differently or they disappear like Corporal Armando Valdez. He disappears for 15 minutes, according to his men, but five days passed for him. His red, watch read five days in the future. He had mm. beard growth indicative of right. five days of beard growth. There's all of these other cases like that. So I think they are the time machines themselves, the discs. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't think the triangle craft are. I think those yeah. are something completely different. But the discs seem to have a form that's consistent with the function of traveling backward in time. Yeah. So do you think, I mean, obviously you've said you're open to the idea that there are multiple, that since, we, I mean, we talk about that there being multiple species visiting and multiple, uh, you know, uh, when we're talking about extraterrestrial. So is it, do you think there could be extraterrestrial um, component to the, the UFO phenomena as well as an extratempestrial? component and pan-dimensional do you think all of these things could be simultaneously yeah in fact in our in our world i do yeah i've come to think that they're all the same thing and and this i I referenced this talk i gave in phoenix a few months ago i guess it was may now for someone who studies time i'm horrible uh with that like oh that was a couple months no that was five years ago yeah exactly um but i gave this exactly that problem i have no i have no internal chronometer at all he doesn't i'll vouch for that uh yeah (laughs) so i i gave this talk because i started with house paper that you referenced earlier as a jumping off point because he says that in his abstract of the paper that it could be any or some iteration of all of these and i took that as kind of a a way to move into how could it be all. And so I gave this two hour lecture, which is exhausting, by the way, no lecture should ever be two hours long. It's a lot. Um, but I gave this two hour lecture about how if we interject the variable of time, and you and I just, you know, this happened to come up, but even we could potentially explain how you might have humans on other planets saying they're from other planets, even if they their original or origination right. point is on Earth. But then the crypto terrestrial model, how you could have them walking amongst us through these hybridization programs where they retain that high consciousness, telepathic abilities, clairvoyance, maybe even telekinesis, obviously future knowledge if they do come from the future. But then um, the interdimensional, I think that's just another aspect of time travel. I see those as one of the same. But the one that I think um, it really helps explain is the sort of breakaway civilization, how we could have sophisticated, highly advanced civilizations that predate the point in time where we go through all of the phases necessary to get to that level of sophistication. And the way that could happen is if they're jumping over into the past. So say we we we, we screw up this world, you know, we nuke everything or climate change just makes it all go to shit. And then they don't want to live here anymore. Why not jump over and go live in a pristine beautiful world prior to the Anthropocene when we came in and started harnessing all these fossil fuels and, and mucking everything up. Hmm. And, and so we might see indications of that. Maybe Atlantis was real. Maybe they're future humans that jumped over. You know? So I, there's no way you could have a breakaway civilization. We couldn't have Homo erectus just suddenly start making rocket ships or with the crypto terrestrials going underground and testing spaceships underground. It's nonsensical if you really start breaking it down and thinking about it. But we could have those scenarios if you have 
the same evolutionary process from simple to complex. Then you have complex jumping over back to a point of simple. So if you start to interject the time variable, again, I'm not saying this explains everything or we should whitewash everything with time, time, time. But if you do think about it in the context of all these moments being connected, these different models kind of blend into one, in my opinion. Talk mm -hmm. talk about a little uh, bit the... Um, there's some, there's some, uh, audience members of ancient aliens that might be disappointed by some of the stuff that you talk about in, um, identified flying objects, but the, I thought it was interesting. We talked, when you talk about the imagery, uh, when you talk about some of the, uh, ways that customs of cultures of how they maybe have changed their bodies to look at a certain way. I mean, talk, talk a little bit about what you maybe don't think, uh, is, 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 is it the proof of aliens and what you think might be the proof of aliens in our past or, yeah, it, or ex tempestrial uh, or, you know, right, right. That's a great question. And, you know, I have a very contentious relationship with ancient aliens because the show innately is sort of racist because it's always aliens build everything <laughs> outside of Europe. You know, the Europeans could do they figured that fine, out, yeah. but they, yeah. they got check. They're fine. Um, but I've been on the show five times too. So it's like, you know, I could only talk so hand. shit about it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> mm -hmm. I know. Um, it, it has gotten a lot better though. The program is, is far better than it used to be. And they, they really exposed a lot of people to this question, which is extremely important. They're probably more than anybody else responsible for getting out there. And so we, we can't take that away from them. So yeah, what, what you're referring to is what's known as uh, intentional cranial modification. I know way more about this than I should because it was a big part of my general exams when I was doing my doctorate. I had learned all about the cranial facial changes and integration and modularity and all this stuff I won't bore you with. Um, but the really interesting part of it is that it's found throughout the world going back tens of thousands of years. So these independent human populations were all modifying their heads in the same way. And in a way that would be excruciating to the babies that they're doing it to. You would have to sit there and listen to your baby cry and cry and cry as you smashed its head from front to back with cranial boarding or wrapping just to make its head look more like something. these aliens. Yeah, something. Right? Something. Mm -hmm. But the fact that their craniofacial form after this is more like these archetypal gray aliens, I don't think that's a coincidence. And one anthropologist, well, I'm guessing they were married. I don't know. Geertsen and Geertsen where their names published a paper in 1995 that demonstrated that they were doing this, that the, cause we do something called bioarchaeological. There's a lot of things. It's ethnoarchaeology specifically is when we dig stuff up and then compare it to what we've learned from the people that are still alive at that time. Mm. I don't feel like I explained that very well, but you dig something up. If there's still ancestors of those people, yeah. you say, Hey, what's this? Mm -hmm. What did, what was this for? Um, <clears throat> so they were asking, through oral tradition, they learned that their ancestors were instructed by the gods to do this intentional cradle modification to look more like them. So they're saying we were told to do this. And, and the fact that it existed all over the world, going back to the time of Neanderthals, I think is, is interesting. Then you have things like the, the Owlman, uh, the Wajina cave paintings in North, uh, Northwest Australia. Over and over, you see these big-headed, big-eyed, overly large eyes for their head and the body size. Why would that be? 
you know, these patterns, if you look at them enough, they they start to indicate what might be happening. And it's very likely that the same phenomenon we see now, the same descriptions of these same beings, we're likely visiting them too. And and think about that for a second. If you had, say, humans coming from 10,000 years in our future, and they also visited people 30,000 years in the past, the exact same people, they're going to represent them in a way that's completely detached from the way we represent them or have the ability to understand them. A lot of things in the Bible, and that was the, this is all the point of my third book, is to demonstrate how many of these aspects of our belief system may have arisen from these instances of close contact as well. And Ezekiel's the obvious one, but there's a number of others that we might want to consider too. And he's describing mm-hmm. a wheel within a wheel, burning embers, these human forms. All of these things are exactly how we would describe these same sorts of things if we lived thousands of years ago. But now we have the ability to talk about lights and electromagnetism and shiny metals. They didn't have that frame of reference. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that, again, is sort of an indication of time travel, where we're talking about the same phenomenon just being depicted in different ways based on the level of sophistication of the people observing it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because our- if you have no technology, you're not going to apply technological framework to something. Right. How, how do you? Yeah, you yeah. don't even have that. I mean, our, our, their cave painting is our close encounters of the third kind, you know, <laughs> we're, yeah. we're just That's you know, a great way of putting better it. at cinematography, but, um, the same kind of, these are the gods we can't quite explain. And, and yeah. these, this is something. And whoever painted that was probably the Steven Spielberg of that time. <laughs> exactly. Too. The one that's get, getting all the, getting all the ladies, you know, with yeah. them, you know? which is encouraging. Cause I thought, I thought it used to be just the strong ones that got laid. Yeah. <laughs> it's encouraging. So, that's what I'm mm. telling you. It's the big brained ones too. It's the creatives, mm. you know, they're the ones sneaking behind the bush and hoping they don't get caught by the big ones. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. true. You gotta be, you that's gotta always, be sharp. That was always, that was like, always my the, gig. The cuddle, the cuddlefish that just, that uh, passes female, so they can yes. get past the big cuddlefish and mate. That's right, the sneaky yeah. ones. Um, but um, well, here let me. I'll I'll float something past you then that I brought up a couple of times on our our podcast. Um, because I always try to think of well, how can I make myself more depressed about things? Yeah, I think <laughs> um, Dr. Masters, we need your help with Dave, just yeah. in terms of not you know bringing the room down too much. And I'm here for you. Know, you. I'm but, here for you, buddy. Um, but I I know that a lot of a lot of people who are interested in the UFO uh, issue and who and uh, who are very upset about the idea of the the threat uh, narrative involving UFOs, um, and they'll always their argument is always well they've been they've been here for thousands and thousands of years and they haven't wiped us out yet so that must be evidence that they are benign and i have the thought that comes into my head after when i hear that that well if they are extra tempestrial uh travelers uh then maybe their relationship to time is very different from our relationship to time yeah and what if what if they actually arrived here an hour ago but they arrived here at all points in time simultaneously. So to us, it would appear they've been here for thousands of years, but to their own frame of reference, they may have only been sizing us up as a species for a very short period of time. Yeah. If, if they're extraterrestrial, you mean? I'm extra, yeah, extraterrestrial and, okay. and time traveling as well. That right, maybe, right. maybe they're creatures, you know, like in the, in the movie arrival, those, those creatures were, I guess, yeah. pan-temporal, we'd call them. They were. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Whitley Strieber talked about that same idea toward the end of his book, where they could come here as extraterrestrials and be like, whoa, they clearly have a history. Let's go back and study it. 
Mm-hmm. So that's like so a they're... so you're thinking like the ships are landing in ancient Egypt and our and our time simultaneously mm-hmm. uh, because they're not picky about that. That's a that's an interesting yeah, for one. them. Yeah, Freak, I think like for them up. for them they may experience time as a you know as I said pan pan temporally we'll say yeah yeah that they that they exist at all points in time at simultaneously. Yeah, that was the the impetus behind Slaughterhouse Five too, the Tralfamadorians. Mm-hmm. gets classic novel. Yeah, that's absolutely a possibility. How how are you relating that to the threat narrative? Though I'm curious. Well, because it it takes away the uh, the comforting notion that that they've been here for so long, and they haven't decided uh, to destroy I us see. yet. Yeah, because because for in their frame of reference, they may have only been here for half an hour. Right. Um. So they may not have come to a, a conclusion about us, even though that to us they would appear to be here for thousands of years. Yeah, well, I think it does definitely not necessarily throw a wrench in, but make you reconsider that as an explanation for why they haven't harmed us. And mm-hmm. I think that's where you're going with this. Like, yes. well, can we just say they're benevolent because they haven't killed us and enslaved us and eaten us or destroyed us or whatever? Um, if they are extraterrestrials and they're time traveling, then yeah, that, that could definitely be an aspect of it. I would almost be more worried about them being future humans concerned with how our system of economic exchange and resource usage may be impacting them and their ability to live on the same planet and what they may be willing to do to certain segments of the population to free up space, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. assuming in their time frame, you mean? Well, this, this, huh? let me, let me ask you, let me, let me, that kind of relates to my next question. So maybe you can help answer both at the same time, which is when, you know, for instance, at the, at the school in South Africa, the kids were told, um, cause two things, one, the kids were told technology is bad, basically like stay away mm-hmm. from technology. It's not doing, you know, protect the planet. They seem more interested in the planet than the people on it. For sure. Yeah. And they, they suggest that technology is not doing us a whole lot of favors, um, which I just like to point out is kind of an oxymoron since they arrived in technology. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. so yeah. someone should point that out. To oh, them. they're hypocrites. Yeah. yeah. Like, they're that, hypocrites. They're, they're, definitely, they're, technological they're definitely human hypocrites. then. They're definitely At least, human. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. If anything kind of indicates they're us, it's yeah. definitely that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, don't fuck it up because we just fucked it up. It's like, okay, thanks. Right. Um, right. Don't do what I did. The So I guess that's, uh, yeah. So I guess that just relates to, are they, in in your in your theory or in you know in this idea is there a future that can change i mean there's one thing where there's the kind of benign uh anthropological let me look at this creature study this creature examine our past that's interesting i'd want to do that if i was a future time traveler i'd want to look at the ancient past and then there's the this our future could change by the result of us interacting with the behavior of the past and that suggests a non-fixed future i guess i'm just i don't know i'm it's maybe it's a paradox maybe i'm missing um but it no and i did i discussed that you guys should have switched books probably because <laughs> i discussed that exact same thing in, well that's why you're here you can uh, explain all the stuff we didn't read exactly yeah cut, cut to the chase um in chapter 13 with regard to the nukes question but I know you guys divided and conquered the first two books. I would recommend you both read the third because the entire Perfect. book is about exactly this question. Cool. Mm-hmm. It, from start to finish. It's a story, you know, a, a nuanced time travel, highly satirical. People have told me it's very funny too. But it's about this issue of 
them uh, either needing some sort of cataclysm or trying to avoid it. And that's been this narrative for a couple of years. Cole Hart's talked about this, Frank Milburn. I've discussed it a number of times as well. A lot of that seemingly coming from the intelligence community. Um, <clears throat> but the question of can they change it? No, they can't change anything. However, they have a much greater awareness of situations than we do. And I can't help but wonder, and this is what I talk about in, in the extra tempestual model with regard to the nukes question, is when they shut down these missiles here in Montana, at Malmstrom Air Force Base, Minot Air Force Base in, in North Dakota, were they doing that because they saw something we didn't? Was there going to be an accidental launch or were they just testing to see if they could in case they had to? Now, it doesn't necessarily mean they're coming back to change anything where we all nuke ourselves and they come back to stop it from happening. That's technically not possible. But if they see the writing on the wall, and many could argue each passing day, the writing is just being thrown like shit across the wall, things things would be more apparent to them than us because they see further down the road than we do. So I think it's more of an intervention because, as I said in my Phoenix talk, we're a bunch of drunk monkeys juggling chainsaws. And we probably look so primitive to them in so many ways, but we also have thermonuclear weapons. And like you said, it's always about take care of the earth, take care of the earth. It's not about stopping Hitler or the, the genocide in Darfur. You know, it's about take care of this planet. Y'all just do whatever you want. Kill off as many as you want to because that actually helps us. If you think about it in the context of them being stakeholders and the sanctity of this planet, the fewer of us there are, then the better the planet is for them. And a buddy of mine once told me when my first book came out, he said, I read this I, since I was a kid. I had this fear of an alien attack, like these extraterrestrials will come here, they'll blow us all up or enslave us or something. After reading your book, I realized, well, if they're us, why would they do that? Why would they hurt us? You know, but I also have to consider with that in mind, Tom, if the planet is paramount, do we matter? Clearly, some of us survive or they wouldn't be here if they are time travelers, if they are future humans. But do we all matter? Do we all need to survive? That's what keeps me up at night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was also wondering, and I could be, I just might not understand my the paradoxes, and that's very possible. Um but is there anything to the idea if, if that the now, despite all the self-help literature, some of which I'm very much a fan of, but this idea of the present as just the only thing versus the present being something that's actually not really identifiable at all, and it is all sort of block time, everything kind of co yeah. coexisting, that right. some cataclysm that would take place now, how do I put this, would impact a future at the same time, but not in a sense of, I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, like that we could impact the future through an event that happens now, but not in a linear sense. Um, like if the future coexists with our present and coexists with our past, could an event uh, fuck up the future, even if it wasn't consecutive? Does that make sense? It does, yeah. <sighs> And, and, you know, that that's hard and and it's mind bending for me, too, uh, because as much as all these events exist, you know, there, there isn't presentism. That idea has kind of been out the window since we were all doing bong hits in the 70s with the postmodern movement. But we know that all of these moments are real past, present and future. The future can 
affect the past. That in itself is something is hard for us to understand. Cause we think about we're taught from kindergarten, line these pictures up, you know, Debbie rakes the leaves and then Jimmy jumps in them, which one came first? Like my kids had to do this all the time. And I was scrambling around like, don't, don't believe this. Don't listen to this. It's um, propaganda. <laughs> yeah, it's propaganda. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> That's what I should have told him. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard to conceptualize that because we do live in a physical reality where we perceive linear time. So yes, I can't explain how that would work, but all, so Igor Novikov, one of my favorite quotes of his is that the past, present, and the future in the presence of a time machine are all one. They're indistinguishable from each other. So with that in mind, yes, it's absolutely possible. And that's also Einstein's view. Yeah. That's the block universe with the ability to travel through time though. You're not Mm. changing things, but you're, you're creating things too. So it's hard for us with our stupid little linear minds from kindergarten to really understand what that means. And I still struggle with that as well. Yeah. Now um, I'm trying to remember what was the term? I mean, uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, a, a, a chronological something protection con- conjecture protection conjecture yeah, yeah. uh ha- like what what do you think of that it's i mean it, it seems like something that stephen hawking just made up because he wanted it to be there uh you know like, i i kind of like the universal constant the yeah, yeah i've got great respect for the man he overcame yeah. so much with his amyotropic lateral sclerosis and just oh, everything he, I had to deal he's pretty with. smart yeah well he had that going for him yeah, yeah. i think we can all agree that uh, no, and, and by all accounts, he was a, a fascinating, hilarious guy. I saw an interview with him and John Oliver, and he was just cracking jokes left and right. I was like, this dude is funny. Mm-hmm. You know, like it wouldn't necessarily expect that. But so, yeah, I, I think you're right, though. And he was clearly anti-time travel. He yes. he did that stupid experiment where he sent on invitations for time travelers to come. Nobody showed up. So clearly time travel is not real. That There's mm-hmm. a lot of logical paradoxes in that he had toward the end of his life, he had this PBS documentary about time travel and the whole thing was essentially propaganda about why backward time travel could never be real. And he, he was almost like the Neil deGrasse Tyson of UFOs, but with time mm-hmm. travel, right. you know, well, just, just and shitting all over words. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hey, I'll, I'll throw down with the dude. Oh no, I, I, uh, I can't, I used to be, used maybe to not like in a Tyson. boxing match or something. Like I'm a decent no. fighter, but he's, he's probably got a few yeah. inches on him. He has become the most irritating oh science God. spokesman on the planet. Wow. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. Like, just, dude, you can't yeah. keep doubling down forever, you know? Yeah. And but as at a some comedian, point, and you got to eat your hat. And and as a comedian, he's got to get better at telling jokes if he's going to keep doing it. <laughs> uh, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah, you got to have some way to, I, I don't know. I, I, I've i gone off on too many tangents about him well, in the past. I'm trying to yeah. rein it in. The um, It's a trigger point. But it's, um, I, guess, there's, there's, I guess there's two... Uh, roadblocks that have been put up by by people who want to um you know there's there's the uh mainstream physics has put up the argument that you know it can't be extraterrestrial uh because nothing can travel faster than the speed of light and it would just take too long to get here and and that 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 argument and then you had the uh the uh the argument against time travel which is the notion that it is that is somehow fundamentally within physics impossible we can travel we know we can travel forward to time. We know we can accelerate. We know we can slow time mm-hmm. through, uh, but the argument that you can't 
that argument that you cannot possibly travel backward through time. Um, is is there? Um, I'm guess is is there any is there experimental uh, data that supports time travel now that you say, or even that that information can travel backward in time? Because I thought, I mean, I knew about the, um, well, the quantum I'm eraser. I'm living yeah. proof that information can travel back in time. Well, that's what I was wondering. Is there something other than the experiences of people yeah. which... Well, which... here's here's the thing, is it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Because any experiment we do in this physical universe is based on our understanding of space and time as we understand it. Mm -hmm. Here's the rub. We don't understand it. Ask any cosmologist, ask any physicist, they'll tell you that time, definitely, and space, most likely, even Sean Carroll says this, is an emergent phenomenon. It emerges from something else that is fundamental. And until we know what's fundamental that space and time emerge from, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. we, we can't know. Any experiment's going to be nonsense because we're not getting at the root of what is actually the thing that is causing the things that we perceive. So it's not like, it's not some kind of cop out. It's just, it's like saying, well, I see ants on the ground. So that must be the smallest animal because we can't see farther past that. We can't see what is at the root, the cells that build it, the atoms, the quarks. And we can study these things, but we don't know what time is. Clearly, yeah. at least I would argue, our descendants do. They figured it out. They've probably melded quantum mechanics and general relativity. They probably have this grand unified theory and they're, they're doing it at this point. We don't, we can't. And, and I was very cautious in my first book to acknowledge that I'm like, this is where I am in my primitive little monkey brain, trying to understand a technology that exists thousands of years ahead of us. Well, I guess that's kind of what the I, best we can do. That's what I was getting at that. I think the, um, the one indication that, uh, that you're talking to someone who is, uh, going to be proven wrong is if they start talking about what is possible and what is impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you follow the work of Jeffrey Kripal at all, who's the one that organized that opening the archives of the impossible with Willie Strieber, Jacques Vallée, um, uh, Diana Pasolka, all of these, you know, really incredible people now, like Edwin May, who ran the, the Stargate project with all of those remote viewers for the CIA. He, he, this is his thing. This is his baby is the impossible, you know, what is impossible if we don't understand the universe? How can we say anything's impossible? You can say yeah. ghosts are impossible. You can say faster than light travel is impossible. But the way we understand it, sure. Backward time travel, impossible. Leaving your body and experiencing all things at all times. So yeah, we got to stop using that word because we just don't have a good enough understanding of reality. Yeah. The one question I would have about... Um how we start to get there the 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 two thoughts i'm holding in my head which is my head can only hold two thoughts at one time so the the two thoughts well I'm, there's only know, two sides of the brain so well, yeah it's, yeah and my i might be each. an extreme example of that but um the <laughs> the uh is the idea of like i i'm very um you're very persuasive about you know um uh, the ETs and, and it makes a lot of sense to me, like that there might not be as much life or as much, uh, in the, in the near neighborhood that we're living in as a planet. Um, and I also feel that at the same time, the universe is teeming with life yeah, and not just, agree. not just teeming with life, but it seems like 
teeming with life that is in kind of proximity to us. Uh, you mentioned DMT earlier. I'm kind of, I'm new to all this kind of stuff, but, um, and, uh, and I won't be partaking for my, because I'm just, you know, too much of a scaredy cat and neurotic, but the, but I will read about it and have read a great deal about it. And we've talked with folks about it here. And I do find it fascinating that this does seem to be, it does seem to be this very unique molecule that is allowing people to interact with entities that, I mean, as someone who did plenty of hallucinogens in his day and, you know, lots of, you know, uh, this, this and that, I, you know, that's, that's pretty new. And I know it's not new from a, you know, we know there's cultures and indigenous cultures have been using, uh, you know, ayahuasca, is that the right way to say it? Ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. Um, And I know this is a derivative of that, but and this, peyote is- this feels like, and I haven't done peyote, but this, but the DMT phenomenon and it's seemingly that it's ongoing, that you can visit where you were, um, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the fact that there people are people so have many- girlfriends and boyfriends in this DMT space. I, How wild I haven't, is that? I yeah. haven't gotten quite to that, but I do know that it's becoming, yeah. to yeah. me, the idea of a chemical gateway is, is, is persuasive. And, and do you think it accommodates the time traveler idea. Well, what's what's even crazier about DMT is it it's naturally occurring in the brain, in the pineal gland of the brain, and it's thought it, based on Rick Strassman's book, the the Spirit Molecule. Yeah, which I, which is it, amazing. Yeah, which is amazing. It's a great book, fantastic yeah. book. Yes, yeah. um, as you know, then it it sort of welcomes you into that realm. It, it's what the near death experience sort of mo- molecule, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you can synthesize that and obviously take it in various mental states. And and yeah, like I said, people go to the same space and have girlfriends and boyfriends or they'll interact with these same DMT entities. And a, a lot of them report very similar things to UFO encounters, uh, very humanoid beings or high levels of consciousness or, or purely energetic beings that that can communicate in these same ways. So and, and that in itself, you know, even outside of whether or not we fully understand the laws of physics or the emergent properties of space and time, that challenges our notions of reality on yes. such a high level. Uh, I mean, and, and even at lower levels of that, you're right, psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, peyote, 2CB, mescaline, all of these drugs give you a sense of this universe that exists all around us that I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say is probably closer to the real reality than this castrated circumscribed physical reality actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a great way to, that's really interesting way to put it too. Cause I, I, I mean, speaking to, you know, my own LSD experiences, it was, even though I wasn't like our big explorer, it was more like, this is a touch overwhelming, but it was overwhelming because there was, this sense of so much not accessed yeah. or so much yeah. there that is just slightly beyond uh, in that experience, my own like ability to get there or my ability to see it. And it, it was more just that overwhelm, which of course at the time you're like, it's just a powerful drug and it just, you know, whatever it's doing. And yet it feels like this, <laughs> the evolutions. Yeah. The evolution yeah. of our, of our say, chemistry. But mm-hmm. was yeah. that actually, more real you know well, you, i think well, that, everybody should ask themselves that on a trip that yeah. launch it's, point it's, like, go ahead Dave. Yeah, i was gonna say i'm not just gonna say because it all it reminds me of, like a lot of the things that donald hoffman 
talks yeah, about. Absolutely. His, you know, his, a great uh, resource. Yeah, his argument that, you know, that evolution um, by necessity uh, selected for us to not be able to perceive reality that, you know, as we said before, you know, because all you really need to do is find a mate and avoid getting eaten. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, and he goes even deeper, like the way we perceive colors and tastes and sounds and everything. It's just such mm-hmm. a small microcosm of what is likely a much, much more complex reality. Yeah. And then ironically, he refuses to do uh, DMT. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> no, I actually saw an interview with someone who was, what was he on? Uh, 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 into the, uh, was that Into the Impossible podcast? Uh, we all don't uh, Brian, want to subject Brian, ourselves Brian, to this, Dave. Uh, it's, it's a, he, this no, is a I, I'll thing. do it. I'll yeah, do it. Uh, you're in oh, LA. Man. I think there's somewhere around LA you can do it. I, I'd like I to do it legally, um, yeah. of well, course. I, I, and and I, and I may allegedly, uh, for legal purposes, have done everything except that. Yeah, oh, DMT. I well, I'll, I'd like I to. Have, I'd like I to have, try. It. I've tried it twice, but but my uh, as I said, the antidepressants I was on, I think, were blocking it. Because uh, yeah. I'm the only person I know of who's done like four or five hits of DMT and <laughs> and felt nothing, <laughs> and was still just sitting there going, "Ah, oh, my throat feels like shit." But, yeah, uh, but they are uh, there's they're they're walking around with thing. one hitters of DMT here in sunny LA. I know, I've seen uh, that. It's yeah. uh, it's the new cigarette. I don't want that. I want the full. I want the full experience. I want yeah. shamans. I want like yeah. I want to see sage. the sage. Yeah, yeah, me too. That's I, I, yeah, I definitely would like to go someplace beautiful and try Iowa. Well, let's all do it. Let's go to an ayahuasca retreat. Go down to Costa Rica. And- I'll be your guide, yeah. guys. I'll be your guide. Yeah. And I will, or at yeah. least I'll watch out for, you know, uh, make sure you don't, you know, hurt yourselves. Because uh, I Appreciate will just keep that. reading the yeah. books on there that There are front. some dangerous animals down there. Yeah. But, and mm-hmm. I was, especially in that Montana. You got bears. Yeah. I don't know what you got, but uh, moose. I yeah. Mean, there's, there's uh, Cust- yeah. Costa Rica, you get all those beautiful sloths. That's true. Well, I read this. Which might, in, a, in a DMT or ayahuasca trip, that might be the most dangerous animal ever because it's moving all slow. Oh, yeah, God. You know, you're tripping yeah. biscuits there and this thing's coming down at you. I don't know. to give you a hug yeah. and you're just shooting your pants. <laughs> yeah. I don't, to me, after reading the spirit molecule and some of the reports back from the front, I was like, I'm out because I know I'm going to be the 30% that gets, you know, raped by the lizard people. I don't need that in my life. I, you know, I got yeah. enough stuff to worry about. And we all draw the line somewhere. I yeah. yeah. And well, I think you know that's a I fair say. line. I'm not going to, yeah. I don't think that I'm going out on a limb. Just, I, you know, know. <laughs> I, I'm willing to do it too. I'll take one for the team. All right. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I, heard yeah I'm, I heard they're not very well endowed. So <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, look, this is all super cool. Um, this is, you know, we, we are really grateful for your time. I love this talk. Uh, we would yeah. love to have you back. Um, you know, and Wes, yeah. as Dave and After I finish, process we'll finish, information. <laughs> we'll swap, we'll swap books yeah, and we'll both books. read the, we'll both read both, the third both book. Both read the third. Yeah. And then we'll yeah. do ayahuasca and we'll come back and, yeah. and talk or, or again. Do ayahuasca and well on, well on a podcast. We'll do. Ooh. Yeah. Well, that's, that's it. Has I will done that. I will Has narrate. That yet? I you think you would uh, think, if Rogan hasn't done it, then no one's done it. All I guess. Right. Well, I'll yeah. check his tapes and I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah. circle back. <laughs> so let me just remind everyone, Dr. Michael Masters, the books that, that are all excellent, and we're looking forward to his most recent, which is Revelation, The Future Human Past. Um, but there's also the Extra Tempestrial Model and Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Scientific Approach to the UFO phenomenon um super cool stuff and uh, a real pleasure to have you sir it's it's been an absolute blast for me thank you both awesome no. all right we'll talk again soon
Appreciate it so much. Thanks, Dr. Masters. Take care. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.